Father, we thank you for these moments. We thank you for your word to us. And for this time we've spent in the Psalms in recent weeks, God, and we pray. And that you would stir within us a hope and a confidence and a trust. Regardless of what our lives look like at this present moment. We know that at any given moment there are so many different stories and situations represented in this room. And we just ask, Lord, that regardless, your spirit would speak a deep hope and confidence, Lord, not in ourselves, but in your goodness and your faithfulness to us. And so would you be among us, Lord? Would you hear our prayer this morning? Would you speak powerfully through your word as we gather here around it and around your table? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry, gang, I'm going to try to find all my stuff here. Yeah, I was thinking about Psalm 130 this week a lot, obviously. And and one of the things that's so interesting from the start, as I was thinking about what it's going to be like to to preach this passage and talk through this together, interestingly, this psalm begins in the depths. Out of the depths, I cry to you, he says. And if you read the next eight verses... As far as we can tell, that's exactly where it ends, in the depths. It begins and ends in the depths. The situation remains the same. The circumstance is unchanged, still swallowed by the deep, the depths overcoming him. And I think that kind of goes against everything in us, if we're being real about it, to read something like that. Like when we see conflict, we need it to be resolved as soon as possible, immediately, right? If there's hurt, we need healing quickly, right? If there's brokenness, we need it fixed. And this psalm's just not going to do that for us, right? Most of our, our favorite books, movies, stories, whatever it is, they tend to indulge us in this way, right? They present us with a conflict, and then they're, they're going to steadily resolve it. They might not resolve it as soon as we'd like. They might not resolve it in the way that we would like, hence Rotten Tomatoes, right? We don't always like the way they do this, but they generally indulge us by fixing our conflict, resolving it, or at least moving it to someplace different, but the psalm doesn't do it. I think about that. Like, Imagine whatever your your favorite movie, book is, not doing this, resolving that conflict, changing something in the story. I was thinking about Rocky IV. Some of you guys are like, I never sat down and watched that movie. Leave that movie alone. Why are you talking about that movie? Because it's a classic, okay? So think about Apollo Creed dying, okay? He dies in the ring. His friend Rocky has a chance to avenge his death in the ring. But instead of going on this journey of self-discovery, realizing who he really is again, overcoming this insurmountable Russian opponent. Instead, the movie chooses to focus on the Soviet doping regime. And the movie ends when uh, Ivan Drago fails his drug test. Rocky never gets a rematch, and the movie ends. Do you really want to watch that? Or like Castaway. Everybody remembers Castaway because of Wilson. Everybody remembers Castaway just because of Wilson. I mean, Wilson's keeping that thing alive. But we all remember Castaway, this, this... Character of Tom Hanks, Chuck Nolan, is deserted on the island. What if he never gets rescued? What if it's just Chuck and Wilson surviving on the island as hermits? Do you really want to watch it? 
If nothing changes, if Cinderella never ends up with a shoe on her foot again, nobody realizes it was her shoe. Like she lives the rest of her life in obscurity. Like the prince lives the rest of his life in despair. He renounces his royal title. He moves to the West Coast. That's what they do these days. Like, do you really want to watch it? We need something to change. We need something to improve. We need the conflict resolved. And Psalm 130 is dismantling the idea for us. That every conflict, every pain, every hurt, every circumstance has to be fixed immediately. It has to get better now. And instead, what we see is someone who's finding hope in the depths. Not after the depths are over. He finds hope while he's still in the depths. We see the psalmist crying out. And rather than fixing his situation over the course of these eight verses, instead, we see him coming to understand his his situation, his circumstance. We see someone who's not demanding a resolution immediately, right? But someone instead who's willing to wait for redemption. Because he knows no matter how long it might take, his rescue is certain. There's this confidence he finds in the depths. And as we sing these words, as we remember these words of Psalm 130, it's this reminder constantly to ourselves. The depths are inevitable. Just because you've chosen to follow Jesus, you're not going to like exclude yourself from pain or suffering or difficult, complicated circumstances. The depths are inevitable. You will face them. But rescue is certain. This is the picture we're given. There is a rescuer. Though we're helpless as humanity, there is a rescuer. In the midst of the depths, we come to that realization. There is something of certainty in the midst of the depths. And then I started asking myself the question as I considered all this, but what exactly do the depths refer to? How are we to understand the depths? Because I I think we all relate to this experience in some way. We know what we mean by the depths. We know what our experience of the depths has been. Like what exactly is the psalmist talking about when he says, out of the depths I cry to you. Is there anything like my situation? Is it anything like what I have seen or faced? And the, the psalmist obviously doesn't indulge us. Just like we don't get a resolution to this conflict. We don't get an answer to exactly what the depths are. But it's pretty easy to get a simple understanding of it, right? At the simplest level, the depths are any sort of situation I might find myself in that I desire to escape from, and yet I cannot despite all of my efforts, right? It wouldn't be the depths if I could escape from it. If there was an easy solution, it would not be the depths, right? This is the reality of it. The Israelites used this image, the depths, literally. It meant the the depths of the sea, right? Think of Jonah. It's one of the classic images. He tells them, the sailors, to to throw him overboard in that famous moment. And the image we're given is that he's sinking down, 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 deeper and deeper into the depths. He's overcome by the depths. This is the image, helplessly caught in something. You cannot escape. And that experience, though, can take a lot of different forms. We know that. The fact that one of the first things out of his mouth as he cries out to the Lord is this reference to sin. Maybe you caught that. That probably means guilt has something to do with this. There's something that has gone down and there's a deep level of guilt he feels. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, 
Who could stand? If you were keeping track of all of this, how, right? The, the Hebrew actually expresses it differently. Our translation gives you this, this image almost of like accounting, right? The accountant who's keeping track of every little number. But in Hebrew, it means literally, if you saw what I've done, if you observed, if you turned your eyes to look upon what I had done, who, who could stand, right? He's aware of this. God knows what I've done. He's not just sinned against someone. He's sinned against God. He's not just wronged someone He's wronged God, and he lives with the weight of this. The guilt of it overwhelms him like the depths overwhelm Jonah. And I, I feel like in some ways we can relate to that, but in other ways it, it can be hard for us culturally to relate to that idea. Because I, I think most of us would say we don't really live in that sort of culture, a, a guilt-shame culture. That's not who we are as Americans. That's not how we tend to, to process things or think about things. And that's something that we've kind of moved away from. And honestly, we're, we're glad. We want to continue to move further and further from that sense uh, of guilt. We don't like it. We don't like how that feels. It makes us uncomfortable. No one in our culture wants to admit guilt at any level Guilt is uncomfortable and, and, and painful, and so we spend so much of our lives trying to kind of talk our way out of it, get away from it any way we can, right? In our culture, we've, we've redefined so many things to avoid guilt. We redefine faith very often, like how I relate to God, how I worship God, what that looks like, what does it look like to be religious or faithful as a disciple? Like we, we want to redefine that so I don't have to experience guilt in that, Right? That's not what God is like. I don't want to feel guilty before him. I shouldn't have to feel that. We redefine relationships very often so that we don't have to feel guilty about the things we've done to other people, right? Like, I'm just protecting myself, right? I have to think about my own health here. And obviously people get hurt, but that's just, that's how relationships are, right? We want to redefine these things so I don't have to feel that guilt, right? We want to redefine sexuality over and over again. That's a constant evolving conversation, right? I shouldn't have to feel guilty about something like consent. I shouldn't have to feel guilty about the attraction I feel or how I act on it or how I've hurt somebody in that way. I don't want to feel guilt about that. I shouldn't have to. It's just a normal thing. We change church. We remove the possibility of feeling any level of guilt from it, right? If, if I don't show up, I don't want to feel guilty about it. If I don't give, if I don't serve if my life doesn't actually reflect the ethic of the church, the values of the church, the love of God that we sing of so often, his patient, long-suffering, faithful love, I don't want to feel guilty about that. Of course I fail at that. I'm a sinner. So we, we try to remove the guilt from all of these scenarios. And in talking ourselves out of it, rationalizing it all, honestly, it works for a while. It works pretty well for a while, but... Then something worse comes along. Shame. Shame is, is not so easy to escape from. Not so easy to, to talk your way out of. Shame is far more complicated. Tim Keller says it, it really well. He said it years ago in a sermon. He says, with guilt, I feel bad about something I've done, right? With shame... I feel bad about something I am. It's ontological, theologians would say, right? It's about being. 
It's not just that I have done a sinful thing, it's that I am sinful. It's not just that I've hurt someone, it's that I am hurtful. I have desired to be something else, something better, something more, and I consistently fail at it. That's a thing you cannot escape from so easy. People feel it. There's this, this sense very often, not only have I fallen short of God's glory, right? Paul says that in Romans 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We feel very often we have fallen short of our own glory, our own expectations, our own standard. We are less than we think we ought to be. We live with that, that level of, of shame, right? We are so ashamed. And sometimes it's in the most subtle and hidden ways people live with this, right? And we try to escape it the only way we know how. As a culture, we scratch and we claw and we do everything we can, right? We seek it in success. We try to find fame. We try to find favor. We try to be seen a certain kind of way, whatever it may be, right? And if I can stop the shame that I feel, right, by doing this, I'm going to do everything I know how to become more and more successful. But the truth is I can't. The idea is, okay, maybe I can't escape shame, but maybe if others see me as more than I see myself, then I'll be able to believe that, right? If others can believe something about me that I don't believe about myself, maybe eventually I'll be able to believe that I have something of worth or value or good, right? And so we just give ourselves to this constant process of trying to make ourselves better, 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 and in all the wrong ways. If I had a more impressive job, if I made more money, right? If people knew this, if I were further along in life than I am right now, if I was where I thought I would be at this point in my life, all these things play out in our minds, right? Then maybe I could believe I have something of worth. Honestly, as a culture, we think we've progressed beyond guilt and shame, and yet we are a culture that is rife with shame. We feel it at this deep level, and our shame motivates us. It drives us. So many of our goals and our ambitions and our desires for our life, ultimately, if you trace them back, it's just a means of trying to assuage this, this sense of guilt and shame we feel. Trying to, to make ourselves something more, trying to polish it up. It's the driving force behind so much. We cannot escape it. But, the psalmist says, with you, there is forgiveness. With you, in spite of all of the guilt and the shame, there is forgiveness. So that we can, with reverence, serve you. The older translations say, so that we might fear you, literally in Hebrew, right? That we might revere you, honor you as God. You are forgiving, right? He chooses not to see our sins, the psalmist is saying. He chooses not to look upon all the things that we've done. This is who he is. He is above all else forgiving. In the depths, we find a rescuer. We find one who is attentive to our cries for help, and yet who chooses graciously not to be so attentive to all the terrible things we've done. He's attentive in the one way, and yet graciously turns away from the other. He chooses not to be so attentive He's merciful. But the reality of the depths is it's more complicated than just guilt or shame. I mean, sometimes it's not about something you've done. 
Sometimes it's just circumstances. Things just happen. Things come along, right? You lose a job, or you lose another job, or you don't get that job, right? Whatever it might be, fill in the, the blank here. Sometimes we, we realize that what we thought we wanted in life, we actually don't. This is not at all what we wanted. All of our goals and our aspirations fall short of what we thought they would. Sometimes we lose a, a meaningful relationship. Sometimes we, we just lose somebody we love. It's deeply painful, right? This is just something that happens. It has nothing to do with anything I've done wrong. Other times we wrestle with uncertainty. We wrestle with doubt. The things that have happened to us cause us to kind of question what we believe anymore. Having seen what we've seen, we're not really sure what exactly we believe any longer. And we kind of wrestle with that. We don't really know what it's like to move forward. We don't, we don't have clarity to be able to move forward, to know what's next for us. It feels just like Jonah, right? We are sinking down, down in our circumstances. And there's nothing we can do to change it, to affect any of this. And what Psalm 130 is telling us is that we may not. We may not escape our circumstances. Things may not get better today or tomorrow or this month. Things may stay exactly where they are. The depths may endure. But he's saying by the end of the thing, our rescue is still certain. There is a certainty in the depths still. The, the other reality I was thinking a lot about, and I feel like culturally everyone is processing at this point, is that some people find themselves in the depths without any particular special circumstance that's playing out in their life, without any one thing they can trace it back to. They don't know. It's not a thing they've done. It's not guilt. It's not shame. They just feel the heaviness of depression. There is a weight that they bear that they cannot explain. And our society is talking about this at a level, at least in my lifetime, they certainly haven't. And I'm pretty sure never before have people felt as comfortable acknowledging these things openly, publicly. They're wrestling with depression, with the dark night of the soul, as the church has traditionally referred to it. Melancholia, they called it. People are finally beginning to wrestle with these things, and it's good. But so often, we only address these things. We solely address this whole conversation, this whole issue with medicine and therapy. And here's the deal. If you come and you talk to me, if you talk to Jonathan, if you talk to the elders of our church, if you talk to so many people in our church, we're going to tell you, listen to your doctor. Take the medication they're prescribing to you. Trust. Try these things. Give yourself to it. Go to therapy. The number of times I say that, April and I always laugh about this. There's so many people we're constantly saying, it's like a broken record. Go to counseling. Go to therapy. Talk through this stuff. Process this stuff, right? We're going to tell you all of that. But here's the thing. If that's the only way you're addressing it, I think what the psalmist is getting at, if that's the only way you're addressing it, your own efforts, all of these things you can do, there is a healing that is beyond just science and psychotherapy. There is a wholeness you are after that neither science nor psychotherapy can give you. And you need all of the above. You need to give yourself to all of these things. And that's the one that's so often neglected. We just want something to take. We want somebody to talk to. And it's not so easy for us in the midst of the depths to realize our only hope, our only certainty is in the kindness of the rescuer. And though you may find yourself still in that, right? There are so many people wrestling through all of this. 
The reality of Psalm 130 is this. Our God is attentive. He's not blind to this. He sees it. He chooses to be attentive, to to turn his ear toward us, to incline himself toward us. And the psalmist says, just wait. Wait. That's all you need to do. Don't feel like you need to act. Don't feel like you need to keep scratching and clawing and doing everything you know how to make yourself better. Just wait, he says. Wait on the Lord. And that's the the closest thing we get to a resolution in the psalm. Wait. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. In Hebrew, it's this word nefesh. It's a word for heart, mind, body, soul, all the above. The whole of who I am, right? My being. That's why they translate it that way. Waits on the Lord. In his word, I put my hope. There's this acknowledgement the psalmist finds in the depths. There is a hope beyond myself, beyond all of my efforts, beyond all of my attempts, and I can do nothing more than wait for him to extend his hands. It's not a picture of apathy or lethargy, no. That's what we feel, though. Waiting feels unproductive. It feels like a cop-out. And when somebody tells you to wait... You begin to kind of wonder, what are we waiting for? But what the psalmist is saying is, when all of my efforts cease, right? When I stop trying to save myself, when I stop trying to heal myself and make myself better, it's then, when all of my efforts come to their end, that my hope begins. That's the picture that we're being given here. But waiting, again, it just feels like passivity. Have you ever been on on the phone with somebody, maybe it's like tech support, whoever it might be. Maybe your, your internet has gone out and they're like, Let me, can I put you on hold for just a minute? And you're like, I know what you're doing. You don't have an answer to my question. You have no fix for me. And I'm just going to wait endlessly. Nothing's going to come of this. That's our beef with long lines at amusement parks, at good restaurants. That's our beef with traffic. I could be doing something else if I weren't here waiting. There's so much better things I could be doing. And all of that is just wasted. All of that is lost because here I am just waiting in line. Long lines, long waits. And it feels like nothing good can come from waiting. Shouldn't I be doing something is the question I always have. Couldn't I affect change in some sort of way? This is a different kind of waiting the psalmist is talking about, right? This isn't passivity. This is a, a kind of holy activity, right? It's not passive, it's active. It's this active decision that I am making to trust the Lord, to trust His will, to trust His timing, His faithfulness to me, that He's the only one who could actually deliver me from the thing I'm facing, right? It's a thing I know. I feel it. There's nothing that's helped me. You're right. There's only one thing that can. There's only one who can actually deliver you. And this is a choice to wait and to acknowledge that. To believe that rather than trying to fix myself when everything continues to show it, it it does not work i'm going to petition the only one who can deliver me i mean i i'm going to entrust my well-being my welfare my good to him and he will be the one to act i will wait and he will act that's the picture of the psalmist here an image that we're given is of the watchman the watchman, right? Not the 
the dark comic, not HBO, not masked heroes who lurk in the shadows and protect their society. That's much cooler than what we're seeing here. The watchmen in ancient society, this is like the ancient equivalent of like the mall security guard. This is the guy who stands in the parking lot and makes sure nobody parks there, right? No funny business. You, we all know this guy, right? It becomes like this joke, a cultural trope about these figures we see. We've all seen this person, right? Seemingly, this person has no means of protecting anyone. If some situation should unfold, we look at them and we think, what would you do about it? How could you fix it? How could you change anything? They can't. We're aware of this. He has this very humble role. It's a significant role because he's going to alert the people who can affect some change in whatever situation might unfold. But it is a very humble role to be the watchman, right? You know what the watchman does? He sits up all night waiting. Everyone else is asleep, but the city is vulnerable at night. Most of all at night. This is when the enemy might come. And so that we're not surprised, so that we're not overcome, the, the watchman sits and he waits all night long to make sure nothing happens on his watch. His hope is not that if something should unfold, he will be able to fend off the enemy and he will become a hero. No, his hope is that morning comes quickly. That this opportunity for the enemy goes away as quickly as possible. This is the hope of the watchman. Not that he'll be able to fix whatever might unfold, but that he'll be able to alert everyone should something happen. But more than anything, that morning will come quickly. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. There's this picture of consistency, of faithfulness, right? The rising and the setting of the sun. In the depths, he remembers. The sun will rise. At some point, the watchman knows. And the, the height of his anxiety and his fear and his worry about what might happen, what he's heard is coming. He knows. Eventually, the sun will come up. There's a faithfulness, a certainty to the sun. And he's saying, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. In the beginning, his conflict, his struggle, his pain was just about himself. I cry out to you. And now he's shifted everything. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. It's not, I have put my hope in the Lord. He's saying, Israel, you people of God, put your hope in the Lord. For with him is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He's saying that the Lord's love is as unfailing as the rising sun, right? The Lord's love to us, even in the depths, is so certain. His rescue is so certain. It's as certain as the, the sun peeking over the horizon, right? It is coming, and we only need to trust it, right? So he says... Wait on the Lord. But the problem is, so often, we find ourselves in the depths. You find yourself in the depth. And you begin to, to kind of imagine, again, in a very self-reliant, independent culture, in a self-made culture, 
We want to fix it for ourselves. You want to be the hero in this scenario. You want to be the savior in this scenario. You want to fix all of this. You want to be the hero. You want to be the savior. And the psalmist says, you're not the hero. You're not the savior. You're just the watchman. You're just the guy who sits up all night waiting on the Lord. The guy who sits up waiting for his faithfulness, for him to do something. You're not the savior. You're the watchman. And as believers, we have to accept this. We really are helpless. That's what we believe. When it comes to the depths, there are so many moments. Sure, you can help yourself. But inevitably, that fails us. That only goes so far. We have to accept that we really are helpless. We are dependent upon the Lord. And we look beyond ourselves for our hope. The only way we can actually help ourselves is to cry out to the one who is attentive to our cries, to the one who hears us. It's something Jesus was teaching his disciples actively, waiting. He said all these things about, about his death, all these things about resurrection, and none of it made sense to them. It troubled them to the point that Peter was like, no, Lord, and it got Peter in all kinds of trouble, right? They didn't understand it. They couldn't make sense of it. And when that day finally came, when Jesus dies at Passover, on that Friday, they sit and they wait. For three days, they're waiting in despair, in anxiety, in fear of what is next. And it takes three days for them to finally understand their hope. They have to wait for it. And then Jesus, in Acts 1, what's been playing out is after his resurrection, for 40 days, he's appearing to his disciples, to all these believing people in Jerusalem and around Judah and Galilee. And after 40 days, he says to them, it's time. It's time for me to leave, right? He, he's going to ascend into heaven. It's this mysterious moment. And he tells them, you need to wait. You need to wait in Jerusalem. You need to wait on the Spirit. And for 10 days, they waited. They reflected, they prayed together, they waited, not knowing what was coming. What did the world Jesus meant when he was telling them to wait on the Spirit? But it was at Pentecost when finally their hope became clear. They began to understand it. They had to wait. This is part of the life of every disciple. We have to embrace this, learning to wait on the Lord. It's not passivity. It's not apathy. It's not lethargy. It's this active decision to trust. This is who we are as disciples. And we find ourselves in the same position, right? After two years of a pandemic, whether you wanted to or not, you have to learn to wait. We've been waiting. We've prayed the same thing again and again and again. I've heard my children pray. They pray it literally every night. Pray that the virus will eventually die off. That's their words for it. I pray the virus will eventually die off. They're just waiting, waiting for it. Think about that. This is the life of a disciple, right? Or when we get the news at the end of last week that another war has begun needlessly. It's affecting people at a deep level. They will have to wait. We will have to wait. It doesn't get fixed immediately. We wait on God's mercy for those who are suffering, right? Paul says it so well in Romans 8. 
is verse 22. You've probably heard it. You know it. He says, we know that the whole of creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth. What a picture of of waiting, of the depths, right? The whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have, he says. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. All of creation is is groaning, waiting for this thing. We are waiting for this thing. And if we're If we've not realized this hope yet, he says, we wait for it patiently. Waiting is this integral, vital part of what it means to follow Jesus. Learning the waiting. Learning to value it. To see that it is a productive thing. That something is happening in the waiting. Something is happening in the depths. There is a certainty, a hope in the depths. And as the band comes this morning... And we move toward the table. The decision we make every week to come to the table, it's it's an act of waiting. When you come to the table, this is an act of, of waiting on the Lord, right? Every time we come, we're confessing this mystery. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And and Christ will come again. We're waiting on it each time we come to the table. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. Every time we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Every time we take the body and the blood of Jesus and partake of it together, it is an act of waiting. It is an expression of trust, a hope in the depths. If you find yourself in the depths, the table's where you need to be. If you don't find yourself in the depths, the table's where you need to be, right? This is an act of waiting, an act of saying, all of my efforts have to cease. All of my efforts have been useless at changing me, at changing the world around me. I want to yield myself completely to the Redeemer, to the Rescuer. That's where all of my hope is tied up, in His faithfulness, in His love. And so we wait in hope as we come to the table. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for these words of the psalmist. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness to us in the depths. You're not faithful simply because you have freed us from the depths before, God. You're faithful in the depths, here and now. And even if night should endure, if darkness should endure, even if we continue to sink down, Lord, we know our rescue is certain. God, would you fill us with hope? Not that things will get better immediately. Not that that this bread, that this cup we drink of in this moment has some sort of mystical, magical power to make everything better, Lord, but that you are faithful, that you are at work in the waiting. That our groaning will end soon. That the suffering of those around the world we're seeing will end. You will be victorious. 
know, would you do that? Stir that work within us. Bring healing and peace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.